This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 9, The Mountains of Ararat and Flood Stories from Around the World. Last week, I discussed the biblical flood story as found in the book of Genesis. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm expanding on the flood story with a look into the mountains of Ararat and other flood stories from around the globe. So let's get started. The phrase, Mountains of Ararat, of Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, is thought to refer to a general region, not a specific mountain. In keeping with that, some researchers believe that the biblical Ararat is a variation of Urutu, an ancient term for the region north of ancient Assyria on the Armenian Plateau. In fact, there was an ancient kingdom of Urutu, which existed between the 10th and 6th centuries BC in the same location. The book of Jubilees, in chapter 7, verse 1, specifies that the ark came to rest on one of the peaks of the mountains of Ararat called Luber. Like I've mentioned before, the book of Jubilees is considered canonical by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, but the Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox and all Protestant churches consider it to be pseudopographica. Pseudopographica means it's a book where the authorship is falsely attributed and therefore cannot be relied upon. That's another one of those words that I probably won't use again. By the way, no one knows where Mount Lubar is, either. The mountains of Ararat in Genesis became identified in later Christian tradition with the peak now known as Mount Ararat, a volcanic ridge on the border between Turkey and Armenia. The mountain itself is known as Ararat in European languages. However, none of the people native to the region have traditionally referred to the mountain by that name. According to Josephus, a 1st century AD Jewish-Roman historian, the Armenians in his time possessed the remains of Noah's Ark at a place called the Place of Descent, about 60 miles southeast of the summit of Mount Ararat. In the Armenian tradition and Western Christianity, based on Jerome, a 4th century Catholic historian, and his reading of Josephus, the biblical resting place of the Ark became associated with Mount Ararat, the highest peak of the Armenian highland, located in present-day Turkey. The countries of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Iran are all within a stone's throw. During the Middle Ages, probably around the 11th century AD, this tradition surpassed the earlier association with Mount Judy. The Mount Judy tradition is now mostly confined to the Islamic view of Noah. I'll get to that location in a minute. Traditionally, Mount Ararat has been one of the major locations for searches for Noah's Ark. Despite numerous reports of Ark sightings to date, no verifiable evidence of the Ark has been found. On Mount Ararat stood the St. Hakob of Akori Monastery. St. Hakob, spelled H-A-K-O-B, is sometimes referred to as St. James. This was an Armenian monastery located on the northeastern slope of the mountain. The monastery was founded in 341 AD by Jacob of Nisbis. The monastery is alleged to have contained relics of wood from the Ark. According to a local legend, St. Jacob tried many times to climb Mount Ararat to find the Ark, which he thought was buried under layers of ice at the top of the mountain. In his quest, he would climb the mountain, fall asleep, and wake up downhill from where he laid down. After repeated attempts, one day God said to him in a dream, quoting, Do not try to find the Ark anymore. I will give you a piece of wood of what the Ark was hewn. End quote. When he woke up, to his amazement, he found the wood lying nearby. He decided to build the monastery at the location where he found the wood. St. James shouldn't feel too bad, as the first attempts to scale Mount Ararat were always unsuccessful. 
It was not until 1829 when Frederic Parrott and Cacciatore Abivan, accompanied with four others, made the first recorded ascent. This alone should attest to the height of the peak. Mount Ararat is currently capped in ice, but the amount of ice is constantly changing, sometimes shrinking and at other times accumulating. As far as geography goes, is about 28 miles, or 45 kilometers along its long axis, and is about 19 miles or 30 kilometers along its short axis. I'll post a photo of it on the podcast Facebook page. It has been long known that Mount Ararat is a sporadically active volcano. Archaeological evidence shows that an eruption buried at least one Kura Arak settlement, causing numerous fatalities around 2500 BC. Oral histories point to a significant eruption in 550 BC, and minor eruptions of uncertain strength might have occurred in AD 1450 and again in 1783. In addition, strong earthquakes not associated with volcanic eruptions occurred in the area of Mount Ararat in 139, 368, 851, and 1319 AD. During the 139 AD earthquake, there was a large landslide that caused many deaths. In 1840, there was a magnitude 7.4 earthquake that caused severe damage and numerous fatalities. Up to 10,000 people in the Mount Ararat region died in the earthquake, including 1,900 inhabitants in the village of Akroy who were killed by a gigantic landslide in the subsequent debris flow. In addition, this combination of landslide and debris flow destroyed the town of Erlik, several villages, and a Russian military barrack. It also temporarily dammed the Savor River. It was this earthquake and landslide that destroyed the St. Jacob's Monastery, essentially 1,500 years after its construction. There have also been those in the West who argued that the Ark ended up far away from Ararat. English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh, in his book titled The History of the World, written in 1616, argued that the mountains of Ararat were anciently understood as not only those of Armenia, but all of the taller mountain ranges extending into Asia and far to the east, and that Noah's Ark must have landed somewhere in Asia, east of Ararat. Muslims do not believe that the Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. According to Islamic tradition, Mount Judy was the location where the Ark came to rest after the Great Flood, but no one knows exactly where this mountain is located. The identification of Mount Judy as the landing site of the Ark continued in the Syriac and Armenian tradition throughout late antiquity, but was discarded for the biblical location, that of the highest mountain in the region, Mount Ararat. Jewish, Babylonian, Syriac, and Islamic traditions identify Mount Judy as the peak near the modern town of Sisra in southeastern Turkey at the headwaters of the Tigris, near the modern Syrian-Turkish border. Arab historian al-Masudi, who lived in the 10th century AD, reported that the spot where the Ark came to rest could be seen in his time. He stated that the mountain was located about 80 parasangs from the Tigris. But, there is much variation on how far a single parasang was, so the distance he mentioned isn't that helpful. Al-Masudi also said that the Ark began its voyage at Kufa, in central Iraq, sailed to Mecca, where it circled the Kaaba before finally traveling to Judy. The Kaaba is the black draped cube-shaped building in Mecca that is considered Islam's most sacred site. Masudi never explained how Noah would have known where to circle considering that the Kaaba would have been under a vast amount of water. He also asserted that Noah built a mosque at the landing site of the Ark, a mosque that he claimed was still visible at the end of the first millennium AD. English researcher George Sale, in his translation of the Quran, published in 1734, noted that Mount Judy is one of those that divide Armenia on the south, 
from Mesopotamia and the part of Assyria which is inhabited by the Kurds. He also mentioned that there was once a Christian monastery on the mountain, but that was destroyed by lightning in the year 776 AD. It appears that this monastery is different from the one formerly on the slope of Mount Ararat. There's plenty more information available online concerning these mountains, but it's time to move on to the other flood stories. Like I mentioned last week, the fact that a similar story can be found from multiple sources does not indicate that the story is false, but instead lends credibility to the story. When a story comes from many sources, some of which are independent, then we begin to believe it. And we continue to believe that it did happen, even when the stories are all different in some, or many, aspects. As a Christian, I believe the flood story as presented in the Bible, but that does not preclude me from exploring similar stories from other cultures. First, there is Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was the central character in the Akkadian poem known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. This poem is considered by many to be the first great work of literature. It is believed to have been written between 2800 and 2500 BC. Among many other things, it contains a flood story. In the poem, Gilgamesh is part human, part god, who travels to meet the sage Utnaptishtim. This was the sage that survived the great flood. When he finally finds Utnaptishtim, he poses the questions that he has traveled so far and suffered so much to ask. How did this mortal man become a god? And how has he eluded death? And can Gilgamesh ever hope to do the same? Utnaptishtim the survivor of the flood that almost wiped out humankind, tells his story. Once upon a time, he says, he was the king of Shurupak, a beautiful, prosperous city on the banks of the Euphrates. Then the gods met in secret council. Enu, the god of the earth. Ninurata, the god of war and wells. Enlil, the god of earth, wind, and air. Enugi, the god of irrigation. And Ea, the cleverest of the gods, the god of wisdom and crafts. Enlil ordered a flood to destroy humankind. Ea had been sworn to secrecy, but he cleverly betrayed the god's plans to Unipotism. Speaking to the walls of his house, he described the plans, while Unipotism heard everything on the other side of the walls. Ea warned him that the gods would be sending a terrible flood. He told him to build a boat of immense dimensions, ten dozen cubits in height, approximately 180 feet, or just under 60 meters with six decks and one acre of floor space. He loaded it up with the seeds of each living thing and with his family and possessions. When Unapatism asked what he would tell the people of Shuripapak, who would have to help him build it, Ea suggested an artful lie. Tell them, he said, that you are leaving the city because in-law hates you. Tell them that when you leave, the city will be showered with good fortune, that all manner of bread and wheat will rain down upon it, and that they will have more fish to eat than they can imagine. So Unapatism butchered bulls and sheep for the workers and gave them rivers of beer and wine to drink. It was like a festival. In seven days, the boat was ready. With great difficulty, they launched it into the Euphrates. After his caulker had sealed them inside, Unapatism gave the caulker his house along with everything in it. When the storm came, the gods clambered up as high as they could go and cringed in terror. Ishtar, a goddess, wept to see her children being destroyed. Eventually, the boat ran aground on the mountain peak. After seven days, Unapatism released a dove. When it couldn't find a dry place of land, it returned to the boat. He then released a swallow. It too returned. 
Then he released a raven, and it never came back. Upon reaching shore, he prepared a sacrifice. The gods of heaven were famished and gathered around the altar. Ishtar came down wearing a necklace of lapis, a deep blue semi-precious stone, made into beads shaped like flies. She said she would never forget her necklace nor this calamity, nor would she forgive Enlil, since the flood was his idea and he never discussed it with the other gods. When Enlil arrived to partake of the sacrifice, he saw the boat and lost his temper. He demanded to know how anyone escaped the flood, since he intended it to destroy everyone. After the culprit was named, Ea himself spoke up. He chastised Enlil for creating the flood and said that if he wanted to punish someone, he should have made the punishment fit the crime. Not everyone deserved to die. He said that plagues, wolves, and famine could have been used to kill some people instead of all the people at once. Since he survived the flood, the gods granted Unipotism and his wife immortality. Next there is the Sumerian flood story. It was recorded on a fragmentary tablet excavated in Nippur, a city in present-day Iraq. It is written in the Sumerian language and dates to around 1600 BC. After a missing section in the tablet, we learn that the gods have decided not to save mankind from an impending flood. Zi-Udzura, the priest and king, learns of this. The next part of the story is missing from the clay tablet. When the tablet resumes, it is describing a flood. A terrible storm rocks the huge boat for seven days and seven nights. Then Utu, the sun god, appears, and Zia creates an opening in the boat and sacrifices oxen and sheep. After another break in the tablet, the text continues. The flood is apparently over. The animals disembark, and Zia bows before An, the sky god, and Enlil, the chief of the gods, who give him eternal life and take him to dwell in Dilmun for preserving the animals and the seed of mankind. The remainder of the poem is lost. Dilmun was a region in eastern Arabia. Obviously, there were similarities between the Akkadian and the Sumerian stories. The Babylonian flood story is believed to have been written after the Genesis story, and likely drew from the Hebrew version in its construction. In this tale, the flood is caused by the great storm god Enlil to punish mankind. In a city called Shurapak, on the river Euphrates, there lived a man called Utanaptism. He was a favorite of Ea the god of wisdom, and was warned by the god. Anaptism built himself a great boat 120 cubits high and the same width. He took inside it his family, many craftsmen, and a great stock of food. For six days and six nights it rained. The sun was blocked out. Even the gods were frightened, and all the men, except for Udnaptism, were destroyed. The gods were distraught at man's destruction. His boat came to rest on Mount Nicer. On the seventh day of their resting on the mountain, he sent out a dove, which finding no place to land, returned. And then he sent out a raven, which did not return, so he knew it was safe to go outside. When he went out of his boat, he made a sacrifice to the gods. The goddess Ishtar came down and created a rainbow, her necklace. When Enlil discovered that Utanapatism had escaped, he was furious and would have killed him. Ea persuaded Enlil that complete destruction of mankind was wrong. He said that only the men who had done wrong should be killed and not all mankind. Enlil was persuaded, but still turned Unapatism into a god so that no man had escaped him. You can definitely see how this story was influenced by the Akkadian and Sumerian stories. Several African cultures have an oral tradition of a flood story including the Kaiwa, Matubi, Maasai, Mandan, and Yoruba peoples. The Maasai people of modern-day Kenya and Tanzania had a story that was very similar to the Genesis narrative. A long time ago, 
the rivers began to flood. Then God told two people to get into a ship. He told them to take lots of seed and to take lots of animals. The water of the flood eventually covered the mountains. Finally, the flood stopped. Then the man, wanting to know if the water had dried up, let a dove loose. The dove returned. Later he let loose a hawk, which did not return. Then the people left the boat and took the animals and seeds with them. The indigenous inhabitants of the Adaman Islands in the Indian Ocean had a concise flood story. The interesting thing about these people is that they had very little contact with the outside world prior to the 18th century. In fact, there is one tribe, the Sentinelese, who remain isolated to this day. From the tribes who have had contact with the outside world comes this story. Puluga, the creator god in their religion, sent a devastating flood to punish people who had forgotten his commands. Only four people survived the flood, two men and two women. The Mayans of Central America had a flood story with little resemblance to the biblical account. Mayan mythology was recorded in the Popo Vua, their book on ancient mythology. In it, their creator gods attempted to form creatures who would worship them. It took three iterations before they were successful in creating a race of humans that would pay the proper homage. The two previous creations were destroyed. The third race of humans, who were carved from wood, were eventually destroyed by a flood, mauled by wild animals, and smashed by their own tools and utensils. Maya flood myths hold that the only survivors of the flood were the four bacabs, who took their places as the upholders of the four corners of the sky. In other Central American myths, a variety of reasons are given for the occurrence of a great flood. Either the world was simply very old and needed to be renewed, the humans had neglected their duty to worship the gods, or they were punished for a transgression such as cannibalism. In these, the flood was one of but several destructions of the creation, usually the first of three or four such cataclysmic events. The Aztecs, however, considered the flood to be the fourth of these. A large number of Mesoamerican flood myths, especially those of the Aztecs, state that there were no survivors of the flood, and creation had to start from scratch. But, there are also accounts that report that modern humans are descended from a small number of survivors. Interestingly, in some accounts the survivors disobey the gods by lighting a fire, and consequently are turned into animals. The Scandinavian flood story is short and to the point. Odin, Vili, and Ve fought and slew the great ice giant Immer, and icy water from his wounds drowned most of the Rhyme giants. The giant Bergamer escaped, with his wife and children, on a boat made from a hollowed tree trunk. From them rose the race of the Frost Ogres. Yermer's body became the world we live on, his blood became the oceans. The Celts of the British Isles had a gruesome tale, but it still had a couple similarities with the biblical flood story. Heaven and earth were great giants, and heaven lay upon the earth so that their children were crowded between them, and the children and their mother were unhappy in the darkness. The boldest of the sons led his brothers in cutting up heaven into many pieces. From his skull they made the earth. His spilling blood caused a great flood which killed all humans except a single pair, who were saved by a ship made by a helpful titan. The waters settled in the hollows to become the oceans. The son who led in the mutilation of heaven was a titan and became their king. But the titans and the gods hated each other, and the king titan was driven from his throne by his son, who was born a god. That titan then went to the land of the departed. The titan who built the ship, whom some consider to be the same as the king titan, went there also. The Welsh have a similar story. The lake of Lyon burst, flooding all the lands. Dwyfan and Dwyfach escaped in a mastless ship with pairs of every sort of living creature. 
they landed in what is now Britain and repopulated the world. The Lithuanians are a bit more verbose, but their story follows a similar theme. From his heavenly window, the supreme god, Peresmes, saw nothing but war and injustice among mankind. He sent two giants, Wandu and Wehus, who represented the water and the wind, to destroy the earth. After twenty days and nights, little was left. Perasmus looked to see the progress. He happened to be eating nuts at the time, and he threw down the shells. One happened to land on the peak of the tallest mountain, where some people and animals had sought refuge. Everybody climbed in and survived the flood, floating in a nutshell. God's wrath abated, and he ordered the wind and water to subside. The people dispersed, except for one elderly couple who stayed where they landed. To comfort them, God sent the rainbow and advised them to jump over the bones of the earth nine times. They did so, and up sprang nine other couples, from which the nine Lithuanian tribes descended. The people of Hawaii have an extremely similar flood story. Nu was of the thirteenth generation from the first man. The gods commanded Nu to build an ark and to carry on it his wife, three sons, and males and females of all breathing things. Waters came and covered the earth. They subsided to leave the ark on a mountain overlooking a beautiful valley. The gods entered the ark and told Nu to go forth with all the life it carried. In gratitude for his deliverance, Nu offered a sacrifice of pig, coconuts, and awa to the moon, which he thought was the god Cain. Cain descended on a rainbow to admonish Nu for his mistake, but left the rainbow as a perpetual sign of his forgiveness. For clarification, awa is a native Hawaiian crop. The Chateau Native American tribe from the Northwest Territories of Canada had an interesting flood story. It's even more interesting when you realize that there was little liquid water in their permafrosted land. The wise man, foreseeing the possibility of a flood, built a great raft joining logs with ropes made from roots. He told other people, but they laughed at him and said they climbed trees in the event of a flood. Then came a great flood, with water gushing from all sides rising higher than the trees and drowning all the people. But the wise man and his family were on his raft. As he floated, he gathered pairs of all animals and birds he met. The earth disappeared under the waters, and for a long time no one thought to look for it. Then a muskrat dove into the waters looking for the bottom, but he couldn't find it. He dove a second time and spelled the earth, but didn't reach it. Next, the beaver dove. He reappeared unconscious but holding a little mud. The wise man placed the mud on the water and breathed on it, making it grow. He continued breathing on it, making it larger and larger. He put a fox on the island, but it ran around the island in just a day. Six times the fox ran around the island. By the seventh time, the land was as large as it was before the flood, and the animals disembarked, followed by the wise man and his wife, who was also his sister, and also followed by his son. They repopulated the land, but the flood waters were still too high and to lower them, a heron, a large wading bird, swallowed all of the water. Now there was too little water. A plover, a smaller wading bird, pretended sympathy at the heron's swollen stomach and passed his hand over it, but suddenly he scratched it. The waters flowed out of the heron and into the rivers and lakes. The Cherokee, a Native American tribe who lived in what is present-day Tennessee, Georgia, and the Carolinas, had an interesting story. Day after day, a dog stood at the river bank and howled piously. Rebuked by his master, the dog said a flood was coming, and he must build and provision a boat. Furthermore, the dog said, he must throw him, the dog, into the water. For a sign that he spoke the truth, the dog showed the back of his neck. 
which is raw and bare with flesh and bones showing. The man followed the dog's directions, and he and his family survived. From them, the present population is descended. It was never explained what happened to the anthropomorphized dog. The Incas in Peru, South America had two interesting stories. Pictorial records of ancient Incan rulers show that a flood rose above the highest mountains. All created things perished, except for a man and a woman who floated in a box. When the flood subsided, the floating box was driven by the wind to about 200 miles from Cusco, a modern city in the mountainous region of southeastern Peru. There the Creator told them to dwell. The Creator also molded new people from clay. On each figure, he painted their clothes and hairstyle, and he gave each nation a distinctive language, songs, and seeds to plant. When he had brought them to life, he ordered them into the earth to travel underground and emerge from caves, springs, tree trunks, etc., in their various homes. He then created the sun, moon, and stars. Another Incan myth goes like this. Their creator god made the earth and the sky, and he created stone giants to live in it. After a while, the giants became lazy and quarrelsome, and the god decided to destroy them. He turned them back to stone, and these stones still exist in these lands. He destroyed the rest with a great flood. When the flood subsided, it left the lakes of Ticaca and Pupo, and it also left seashells on the Altiplano at elevations of 12,000 feet or 3,600 meters. He saved two stone giants from the flood, and with their help he created people his own size. He reached down into the lake and drew out the sun and moon to provide light so he can admire his new creation. In those days, the moon was even brighter than the sun, but the sun grew jealous and threw ashes onto the moon's face. In the Manu and Matsa culture of present-day India, the story first appears in the Chattapatha Burumana, written sometime between 700 and 300 BC, and is further detailed in the Matasa Purana, written between 250 and 500 AD. Metasa, who is the incarnation of the Hindu lord Vishnu as a fish, forewarns Manu, who is the ancestor of mankind, about an impending catastrophic flood. Matsa orders Manu to collect all the grains of the world in a boat. In some forms of the story, all living creatures are also preserved in the boat. When the flood destroys the world, Manu survives by boarding the ark, which Matsa the fish pulls to safety. To me, this is the most interesting non-Judeo-Christian story, because it was written at a time where there would have been little contact with the people who were writing a similar story. This is the most consistent, independent attestation of a cataclysmic flood story survived by a man who knew well enough in advance to build a large ark. Many of the critics of these stories propose that most, if not all of the stories, have been influenced by the Judeo-Christian narrative. They argue that this is especially true in those societies without a written language, that relied solely on oral tradition. In that regard, we may never know if their proposition is true, and it certainly does cause one to think. But the prevalence across continents, and in many cases from written sources, is a great curiosity. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll explore the Table of Nations. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. If you feel inclined, log on to iTunes and give the podcast a like or maybe even a positive review. Doing so will help others find it. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.